Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Buying your first home. It's probably going to be the biggest financial decision you'll ever make. But are you ready for it? I think we probably said it as a bit of a joke at first. Being like, oh, wouldn't it be really nice to live together and buy this house? And we've got a bit of a habit of like just looking on right move of the things you could buy. In this episode, we're going to meet a couple who've decided to make that big financial and emotional decision. Sarah, who you've just heard, is 31 and works as an IT consultant. Her partner, Alex, is 29 and works for a media company. So I'd love to know, before buying a house, what are the key things that we should know before we take out a mortgage, before we buy a house and before we make a big commitment? Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's Consumer Editor. In this episode, we're going to talk house buying and mortgages and everything you need to know to get it right. From working out what you can afford to finding the right place to securing the money to buy it. So we usually prepare clients for what could be considered a crossroads or a big financial event. So for younger clients, it would be exactly this. It would be how to prepare for and think about buying your first property. There's no one-size-fits-all answer with mortgages. It really does come down to the individual circumstances and the goals that they are trying to achieve. Those are our experts. You'll meet them later, of course. But for now, back to our first-time homebuyers, Sarah and Alex. Tell me your story. How did you meet? How long have you been together? We've met a bit by accident, really, on Bumble. Oh, no. I mean, it's the least accidental way to meet. You're really trying to meet someone if you're on a dating app. Um, yeah, we met on Bumble about in summer 2018. OK. We had a very good first date. So things have continued and we are nearly four years in to our relationship. Sarah and Alex started renting a place together back in 2019 and then gradually decided that they'd like to buy. High London rents and the stamp duty holiday during lockdown both played a part in that decision. Can I see said said house? I think you've got some, some pictures on your smartphone. We have indeed. I think they're literally permanently um, saved on my phone. Wow, gosh, it's huge. It looks Georgian. Yeah, it is. so it's from 1820, apparently. This is better than my house. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it wouldn't take a lot to be better than my house. Wow. I mean, that is um, a serious 
serious amount of space. I'm glad it's showing up on Rightmovers' sold subject to contract. Yeah, yeah. The flat they rent now in East London is in a buzzing area. But Alex and Sarah knew they would be able to stretch their budget if they looked further out. But how much could they afford to borrow? So we spoke to some mortgage advisors and we, well, before we did that, we went on to all the online mortgage calculators and put in our deposit and we just did sort of rough workings out. Um, And then we had an idea of how much we could afford and started looking in places. But we soon found that we were definitely priced out of some areas that we wanted to go to. We loved Hitchin. We really loved Hitchin in Hertfordshire. I was born in Hitchin. Oh, really? Oh, it's so nice. It's so gorgeous. But it was just, we couldn't get what we wanted for our money. Um, So we expanded the search radius a bit. And then um, came and found the house that we fell in love with, which was in Biggleswade. In 2020, Biggleswade in Bedfordshire was voted London's most affordable commuter town. It's not actually in London. It's just 44 minutes on a train from King's Cross. As Alex and Sarah can both work from home, this distance doesn't bother them. They were drawn by the space and the price. We had a bit of a dance with the, with the offer and then we agreed under the asking price. So we were quite pleased with that. You're so close to completing on your first home. This is such a big moment for both of you. But when do you think you will get the keys? Hopefully late June. We're hoping to be in in summer so we can paint and plaster and everything with the windows open. But we hope late June. Yeah, so that we can get a lovely dog and open the double doors to our garden. And come back and do a podcast about pet insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Happily. (laughs) Now, one of the biggest decisions that prospective homebuyers have to make is what kind of mortgage to go for. Something we'll talk more about with our experts later. What have Alex and Sarah got their eye on? We've gone with a five-year fixed rate. Um, There's a couple of friends and people at work that said, oh, the interest rates might go up. Better get a a long-term fixed rate. So, um, yeah, that's what we did. We did almost look at the 10-year, but I don't know. It's a bit... (laughs) We're literally first mortgage, first house. 10-year was a bit much, so we've gone five-year fixed. They're happy with that decision, but something else has been bothering Alex. Some people say, when I say some people, I mean my father, (laughs) say to borrow to your maximum on a mortgage. And we didn't know if that was good advice or not. So how much more would lenders have been willing to to loan you both? So according to our mortgage broker, um, based on our deposit, they were willing to give us about 50% more. So you, so you were thinking seriously, okay, well, we could afford that, but what would we have to sacrifice? And I really don't think, I, personally, I, on my salary, I wouldn't have had much to play with at all. It would have been the mortgage, it would have been bills, and then it would have been baked beans. <laughs> <laughs> now that they're nearing the end of their property buying process, what do Sarah and Alex wish they'd known about at the beginning? Sarah first. I think one for me, which sounds quite silly, but when we started speaking to our mortgage broker, we forgot at that point that there was stamp duty and that obviously that would then have to come immediately out of our deposit. So that's something that threw me off. I knew we needed to pay stamp duty, but I didn't really take into account 
that that would be an upfront cost. A quick explainer here. Stamp duty is a tax calculated on the purchase price of your property. First-time buyers in England don't pay any stamp duty on properties costing below £300,000. If they buy a home costing more than that, they must pay a 5% tax on the proportion between £300,000 and £500,000. To see what you might have to pay, use a free online stamp duty calculator. There's a link to one in today's show notes. Mine would be knowing your finances before you speak to a mortgage broker because they asked so many questions and I didn't have any of the answers. They asked me how much I have left to pay for my student loan and I had no idea. There were so many questions about the really granular specifics of my finances, which I didn't know. And I just had to say to multiple mortgage brokers, I'm so sorry, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you. There are still quite a few things that Sarah and Alex would like to quiz our experts about. Really, I wanted to ask about mortgage early repayments. Is it worth it um, or is it worth investing in something else? And also, based on early repayments, is it wise to pay your mortgage off at all? I think when we are looking to invest in the future, we don't know whether to invest in another house and rent that out, but that will involve another big stamp duty cost. Or do we invest it in a in stocks and shares or ICEs, like we don't, for us, the big investment has always been buying a house, so we don't know where to go next. Well, we'll address all of those questions, but first, let's spool back a bit in old terminology. Alex and Sarah have already got their mortgage offer, but if you're starting out, how does that process work? It's time to introduce you to our first expert. So my name is Daniel Knott. I am a mortgage broker or mortgage advisor. Um, I help home buyers across the country to achieve their property goals, whatever they may be. I found Daniel through a post on Instagram. There aren't many mortgage brokers on there and Daniel is making some great content, clearly explaining how the process works. I asked him, why should somebody looking for a mortgage go through a broker who charges a fee instead of directly to a lender? So a hall of market broker has access to the hall of the market and it's their job to identify from the hall of the market who is the most suitable mortgage lender and therefore what is the most suitable mortgage product. It's somebody there to hold your hand from an initial call right up until the day that you get your keys for your property. Whether you employ the services of a broker or not, as we heard from Sarah and Alex, you'll need to go armed with some paperwork usually your most recent bank statements, and if you're employed, your payslips. And you'll have a credit check run on you. But your first question, especially with property prices going up at the rate of knots every month, is going to be, how much can I afford to borrow? Every lender has different affordability criteria. Um, so every lender will, will be willing to lend you a slightly different amount. Generally speaking, lenders will lend around 4.5 times your annual income. However, there are, you know, many varying factors such as, you know, what debts you have, um, as well as that any, you know, any restrictions on your criteria such as bad credit, um, maybe self-employment with certain lenders. And if you're borrowing as a couple, what happens to that, to that multiple 4.5 times? Yes, so that would be 4.5 times your joint annual income. Um, as I say, it does vary. 
but let's say if you were a couple and each of you were to earn a £30,000 gross annual salary, that would be 4.5 times £60,000. Can you do the maths in your head? So that would be £270,000. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. You're faster than me on mental arithmetic. If it ends with a five or a naught, then I can, I can, I can normally do it. Once you've made those calculations, what else do you need to discuss? The broker will have a conversation with you initially, what your circumstances are, what you are trying to achieve, speak about what deposit you have available um, or will have available when it comes time to submit an application. Um, a broker can then tell you, you know, what's realistic um, and you can have a conversation to identify what the route, the best route is to proceed. Following that, a broker will then request a decision in principle for you from a mortgage lender. And what this is, is, is essentially a document from a lender saying we would be willing to consider lending to these applicants X amount. So once you've got that, it's time to get out there and get on the house hunt. Note, Daniel's saying get that document before you start looking. Why? Estate agents to accept a, a, an offer on a property will want to view that decision in principle. Right. Because um, that shows that you are, you know, a serious buyer and, you know, that you could potentially finance the property. Yeah. And, and then you've got to decide on the type of mortgage you want, a variable rate or a fix. And if it's a fix, how many years do you want to fix for? I mean, Dan, how should property buyers approach these decisions? So a variable rate mortgage is exactly as it sounds. The interest rate and the attached monthly mortgage payment is going to vary. So who would proceed with a variable rate mortgage? This may be somebody who believes that interest rates are about to drop and therefore they are happy to you know, take that risk of being on a variable rate mortgage. Right now, interest rates are rising and economists expect the Bank of England to increase them again more than once this year. The vast, vast majority of home buyers would prefer a fixed term mortgage. The reason for this is because a fixed term mortgage is ex exactly as it sounds again with your interest rate and the attached monthly mortgage payment fixed for a period of time. But if you're opting for a fix, how long should you fix for? Two, five or even ten years? Part of the answer depends on when you're likely to sell up and move on. So fixed rate mortgages come with early repayment charges if you were to yeah, make those repayments early. So... There's no one-size-fits-all answer with mortgages. If you are purchasing um, your first home and you are thinking, we're probably going to move again within the next few years, a two-year fix may be most suitable or a three-year fix. If you are a family purchasing your forever home, um, you're pretty confident you're going to stay in that home for you know a long period of time, then a longer fixed-term mortgage would probably be most suitable. If, like Sarah and Alex, you haven't borrowed up to the maximum, one option you might consider is overpaying your mortgage every month. What does Dan think about this? Yeah, so overpaying on a mortgage is a fantastic opportunity. Every lender has different conditions, but generally speaking, um, lenders will either let you overpay annually um, 10% of the original loan amount or 10% of the outstanding loan amount. Therefore, if you have a mortgage balance of 250000 this year you will be able to overpay 25000 without penalty. Hmm. 
So I actually did a post on my Instagram recently regarding overpayments. Depending on the figures, you know, how much you could potentially save will, you know, will vary. However, the example that I gave was um, for a repayment mortgage with a loan amount of 150000 a mortgage term of 25 years and a five-year fixed interest rate um, at 2.50%. If you were to make regular monthly overpayments for five years, of £150, that could potentially save you overall £6,422. It could also potentially reduce your mortgage term by one year and 10 months. Dan has lots more examples like this on his Instagram feed. Follow him at Dan Does Mortgages. Now, one thing that Alex and Sarah wish they had known about earlier in the process was that they'd have to pay stamp duty up front. What about other fees? When I bought my first property, that was something that even I wasn't quite prepared for. Fees that can be attached with home buying initially would be your solicitor fees, any potential broker fees. As well as that, having a survey carried out on the property may be advisable and there will be survey fees attached to that, although it is optional. And finally, mortgage products sometimes do come with arrangement fees from the lender. Now, these aren't on every mortgage product and they're not with every lender. Generally, they will be around 500 to a £1,000. And if you meet criteria, you may be able to add this to the mortgage. However, you would then pay interest on that. So on top of any stamp duty, first-time buyers may need to budget for a few thousand pounds to cover all of these items. A tip from me. You may be tempted to save money by skipping the survey, but it really is a wise investment. If it throws up any problems with damp, structural issues or other problems, you can insist the seller does this work or potentially negotiate a discount. These aren't the only financial decisions that buyers like Alex and Sarah need to consider. And for this, I invited another expert into the FT studio. So I'm Jo Little. I'm a chartered financial planner and I run a chartered financial planning firm based in Hertfordshire, although I actually live in Stoke Newington, North London, and I'm 33 years old. Brilliant. Quite young for a financial planner, but then the age of the clients who are coming to you for advice is also getting younger. So getting on the property ladder, obviously the ultimate goal for many people listening to the podcast. But as Alex and Sarah are finding, there are a lot of financial questions to consider. Now, as a financial planner, Joe, what are the usual things that you're preparing your clients for at this stage? Mm, yeah, so that's a really good question. It really depends one, on the age of the client and at what stage they're at in life. So we usually prepare clients for what could be considered a crossroads or a big financial event. So for younger clients, it would be exactly this. It would be how to prepare for and think about buying your first property, um, how to make the most of your savings, starting to invest in pensions, how to get your head around workplace pensions and maybe some company share schemes. And then it's really thinking as we're about to enter this big financial decision, and it's not anything that we really like to think about, but, you know, what happens if something were to go wrong? Either one of you became ill, uh, one of you lost your jobs, um, something happened to the relationship where it broke down. And it's really about thinking, what would we need to have in place to protect ourselves? To state the obvious, this is what financial planners do. They plan. And in thinking through those different future scenarios, 
Understanding the way the ownership of your property is structured is vital, as Joe explains. So there are two ways of owning a property. One is called tenants in common and the other is called joint tenants. Confusingly, they both have the term tenants in it. Yeah. And there's, So there's a lot of jargon. And actually, when you buy a property anyway, there's a huge amount of uh, legal jargon. So it's really important to know the difference between the two. OK, hit me. So... Let's assume you are buying a property that's made of bricks and there are 100 bricks. Tenants in common, if you were to own the property 50-50, means that one of you has 50 bricks and the other person has their own 50 bricks. Each person can decide what they want to do with their own 50 bricks, be that remortgage based on those bricks, be that gift those bricks or sell them to somebody else without having the need for the other person to agree beforehand. Right. Okay. How does that compare to being a joint tenant? So if you owned the property as joint tenants, let's assume the same example of 100 bricks, both of you would own all 100 bricks jointly. Now, the important distinction is if either one of you wanted to make any changes, be that remortgage, sell or gift, you would need the other person's agreement before you can proceed on that basis. And also in the event that something were to happen to one of you whereby you died, then if you owned the property as joint tenants, then the other person's share of the property would automatically pass to the surviving joint owner. So you wouldn't have to be married in a civil partnership or have a will if you're joint tenants. The other one would get the other half. But if you if you weren't, then disaster. And that's a really important thing to remember with tenants in common, that you will need a will if you are to have any say or control over where your portion of the property goes. This might all sound a bit heavy, but if you're borrowing hundreds of thousands of pounds to buy a property with someone else, You both need to know this. Do you think that a lot of people buy a property jointly without really understanding all of these implications? A hundred percent. So I would put myself in this position. So when I bought um, my first flat, and I was lucky to with my brothers, and I was given the choice, I just ticked a box and didn't really think anything of it. And so it's only now, um, now that I'm a chartered financial planner and, you know, I kind of see the implications of this, it's really important for people to know the difference. Taking it back to Alex and Sarah, they're about to borrow a lot of money to buy this property. What are the other things that they need to think about now in order to avoid problems in the future? I asked Jo what would be on her checklist. So a big one would be to make sure that they have enough protection in place. So in the event that one of them were to become ill or die, uh, that there is a pot of money there essentially to help pay off their part of the mortgage. And that really means that the other person isn't forced to sell in the event that one, they couldn't afford the mortgage anymore or two, one of them passed away. And typically that would be life insurance that you would take out at the same time as as taking out the mortgage? 
Yes, so it would be life insurance and you can either choose to have it to the end of life or you can choose a specific term. So let's say they've got a mortgage until age 65 or 70, then you can choose to have um, an insurance product that ends when they are due to pay their mortgage off. And then other forms of insurance, income protection, critical illness. Yes, so income protection will typically protect up to, let's say, 60-65% of your current income. And that will be paid to you tax-free in the event that you became ill or weren't able to continue in your job. Another type of protection is critical illness, and those will typically pay out a lump sum in the event of you being diagnosed with a certain sickness or illness. Alex and Sarah could have borrowed a lot more money based on their deposit and their income, but they decided not to to the chagrin of Alex's dad. What does Joe think about this question of how close to your limit you should go? I am amazed and really pleased that they have been so sensible in the decisions that they've made. So one of the things that is completely unknown to us at the moment is whether or not interest rates will rise. And so the position that Alex and Sarah have put themselves in is one that should interest rates rise and impact on their mortgage payments, then they have already that buffer to comfortably afford those payments. And also, if they've found somewhere that they genuinely love and it's within their price range and they haven't had to borrow to the hilt, then I think that's brilliant. And having a bit of wriggle room in their budget means there's more options. Overpaying the mortgage, for example, or funding other investments like pensions or ISAs. So the number one priority is to absolutely do something with that headroom because lots of people will find slack in their budget and suddenly start to spend it on lifestyle things and that's when we see lifestyle creep come in. So it's absolutely you know, imperative for them to invest either by re- overpaying their mortgage Um, invest in ISIS, uh, contributing more potentially to their workplace pension. Back to Alex and Sarah. What did they make of what the experts had to say? Sarah first. I think I'm just I'm just pleased to hear that it sounds like we've made the right decision. And despite um, friends and family saying max out how much you can borrow, um, we haven't done that. And it sounds like it's the right decision. It feels nice that not only do we feel comfortable in the decision we've made, but it's also been backed up now by experts. Yeah. I mean, what else struck you about what the experts had to say? I mean, the savings that Dan was outlining that you could make if you overpaid on that mortgage example. I mean, you could obviously put your own numbers into a mortgage calculator and come up with some numbers for yourself. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of head scratching that's going to go on because... Those numbers are really more significant than I expected from Dan. I wasn't that keen on overpaying our mortgage before, but those figures have definitely made me think a bit differently. Well, it's like Joe said, it's having a range of options maybe with your surplus money in your budget, but the absolute number one thing that you shouldn't do is let the lifestyle creep set in, develop a soft furnishings addiction... <laughs> Um, or a mug collection um, in my case but you know she, her, her message was essentially make a plan for, for that slack that is in your budget whether it's 
doing a little bit of mortgage overpayment, a little bit of extra company pension. So it's just finding the right the right kind of menu of options between the two of you. Yeah, that's great. I mean, like, realistically, we probably won't have any surplus income for at least a couple of years because we'll, we'll be investing in the house and we have to buy a lot of furniture and, and those kind of things. But then, say, in, in two years' time when we have that excess uh, kind of surplus money, then we've got a lot of different places we can put it. Mm. I also think that was just brilliant advice. I love the term lifestyle creep because I can see how it happens. It happens so slowly, but you get accustomed to a little bit extra. And I think planning now exactly what we will do with any surplus income is a really, really good idea because then you're more likely to do it because it doesn't seem so scary and intimidating when you've assessed all your options. Hoping for the best but preparing for the worst is a phrase that is commonly used by financial planners. But when you were hearing Joe talk about the various ways you could mitigate those risks, different types of insurance you could consider, is that something that you thought about before? No, <laughs> is the answer to that. I think Joe was definitely right in that. I think I didn't understand the implications of those different types of joint tenants and tenants in common. Do you know which you are? I think we're tenants in common, but we probably need to check that out. There are definitely things that Joe mentioned that I didn't realise. I didn't realise that being tenants in common, that Sarah can just sort of sell her half if she wants to without my consent. Insurance as well, life insurance you would take out in the event that one of you died and then the mortgage became a problem is that something that you'd thought about before no our mortgage advisor did actually send us an email last week saying that we should think about these things and I just sort of filed it I think it's interesting it's only now that I realize how many extra costs there are so we've never had to pay building insurance before and that's something we need to look at and then contents insurance life insurance critical illness cover potentially the salary cover one. Quite a lot of things I sense on your financial to-do list as a result of coming on Money Clinic, but hopefully overall a positive experience. Definitely. There is a lot uh, that we need to consider, but it's all, it's all good and we've got enough time to consider it now as well. So thank you, experts. Well, just remember to invite us to the housewarming. Oh yeah, definitely. Drinks on us. <laughs> That's it for Money Clinic this week and we hope you like what you've heard. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. And if you would like to chat with me on a future episode of the show, get in touch. You can email me. Our address is money at ft.com or DM me on Twitter, Instagram or TikTok. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced and edited in London by Persis Love. Our executive producer is Manuela Saragosa. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner and the original music is by Metaphor Music. And finally, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's the small print over and done with. See you back here soon. Goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., 
Corrientes experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.